to the new Reftem episode. So our guest today is Robert Talise, professor of philosophy at the Vanderbilt University in Nashville. He has recently published a book with Oxford University Press called Sustaining Democracy, which discusses, to put it broadly, epistemology of democracy. Welcome, Robert. Thanks for having me, Kasia. Thank you for accepting the invitation. Sure. And straight away, I will just start with a provocative question. So why ever writing a book on the need to sustain democracy at all? So do you think that democracy is now in such a crisis that we need to go back to the essentials of democracy? Um, so I do think that there's a, um, a crisis in uh, democracy, particularly in democracy in my country, although not only in democracy in my country. And um, I think that the crisis is um, not fully uh, understood. So one of the motivations for writing Sustaining Democracy was to try to bring into view an aspect of um, what democracy requires of us as citizens that I think is um, too frequently overlooked. So very roughly, if I may, um, you know, democracy, is, here, here's an experiment that, that you can run. You can do a Google images search for, this is what democracy looks like. So Google image search the phrase, this is what democracy looks like. And quite understandably, you'll get hundreds of thousands of images of masses of people in the streets, carrying signs, um, politically expressing their views in oftentimes making demands on the political system, uh, making um, certain kinds of political concerns more public, more visible to the public, so on and so forth. Now, I don't deny that that is one of the things that democracy looks like, one of the ways democracy looks. Um, but remember, democracy um, needs active citizens, and that's what you're seeing in the, in the images, but it also needs reflective citizens. It needs citizens who are able to think their own way through some pretty tricky issues. And I think that um, uh, when we're in the, the, the fray, when we're in the throes of democratic politics, when issues seem to us urgent, when it matters to us what the outcome of a democratic decision point is, whether it be an election or some uh, policymaking uh, episode, you know, the activist side of democratic citizenship takes center stage as it should. But this other element, the reflective element, sometimes gets undermined or lost in the clamor of democratic citizenship. And I want to suggest that that's a problem, not only because um, it leads us to misunderstand and in many cases mistreat uh, our, our political opponents. That's a common story. You know, we hear that about echo chambers and all that stuff. And I, I agree with all that. 
But the argument of sustaining democracy is that um, when the reflective side is overrun by the need for action, it actually hurts our alliances. That is, we become less good to our political friends uh, uh, when uh, we, we give up uh, the reflective mode uh, for the urgency uh, for, uh, for democratic action. And um, last point, you know, you can, read a, uh, you can read a lot of democratic theory, as I'm sure you have, and many of the people who will be uh, viewing this interview have. You can read a lot of democratic theory and walk away with the impression that um, whatever the dysfunctions of democracy are, whatever the challenges to democracy may be, whatever the problems may be with democracy, we just need more active citizens. And I just think that's wrong. I think that, um, you know, sometimes what we need is citizens to take a step back and not withdraw from politics, although they might need to do that sometimes too. But sometimes what we need to do is take a step back and think a little about politics away from the view, away from the influence, away from the pressures of um, the political conflicts we're embroiled in. Um, so the book ends with a uh, with the argument that says, yeah, democracy looks like masses of people in the streets, but guess what? Democracy also looks like a guy sitting alone with a book. That can be an that is an act of citizenship as well. How's that? No, it sounds terrific. Like in mo with most arguments, I disagree with you. <laughs> Great. I wanted to ask you uh, one question that is inspired somehow by a recent lecture that I heard uh, given by Camila Vergara, because she was arguing that democratic theories or constitutional theories are of more procedural nature and less of substan substantive nature. And would you agree also with this argument? that perhaps the main culprit of, of our thinking about democracy is now this procedural approach towards it. So, you know, there are lots of different ways to understand the, um, I guess what's very often formulated as a kind of tension, maybe even a conflict between the demands of what we might say democratic proceduralism you know, one person, one vote, free and open elections, general conditions of free exchange of information and ideas, so on and so forth, um, with uh, what might be called the, the sort of substantive uh, dimension, which is, you know, we're interested in um, getting things right. We're, you, know, if the, you know, if the tax rate ought to be X, you know, we want a political system that you know, gets the result of the tax rate being X, or if drug, you know, drug use should be decriminalized, uh, you know, it counts against a political system if it reliably produces escalating levels of criminalization of drugs, right? So we want right answers, um, but they have to be achieved in ways that respect um, certain kinds of procedural norms. And as you were just pointing out, um, it looks as if the procedural stuff can um, uh, obstruct 
um, democracy's ability to get the right answers. So um, how do we do this? Look, you know, there are some, um, in fact, some, some views that I'm, I'm pretty um, sympathetic with that claim that when, democrat, when democratic procedures are properly designed, um, they are epistemically most reliable. They might not always get the right answer, but they perform better epistemically than any alternative collective decision-making mechanism or any alternative procedures. And, you know, there are, there are certain kinds of um, formal results, including, for example, the Condorcet jury theorem and the diversity trumps ability stuff that uh, Elaine Landemore uh, uh, sometimes writes about um, that are supposed to show that that's true, that proper, properly democratic procedures are epistemically best among available options. Um, I myself am not so sure about that. Um, uh, so here's how I would, uh, here's how I would run this. Um, I would want to say that um, uh, democracy is about getting right answers, but the right way to understand the question that democratic societies are trying to ask themselves and get the right answer to is not simply the question, you know, what should the immigration policy be or where should the, how should we set the tax rate? The question for a democratic society is always in part the question of what can we force other people to do once we recognize that they are our equals. So I wanna suggest that the epistemic stuff, the getting the right answer stuff, that element of democracy is always constrained by a moral requirement because politics isn't just about inquiry uh, in the direct sense. Politics, when it is about getting the right answer, it's about getting the right answer given the fact that politics always involves the exercise of power over people who are moral and political equals. And so that complicates the epistemic stuff. So now we're not just asking, you know, what, what, what drug laws are most consistent with justice? We're asking what drug laws that are permissibly imposed on our equals are most consistent with justice. And so I think that there you have a way of um, easing the tension by understanding the substantive elements of democracy as constrained by certain kinds of moral requirements that the procedural elements are designed to force us to respect. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think we are now at the right, like in the core of your book. Uh, it's one of your core arguments that you talked about now. And you provide a lot of examples from your own life, which is very, like, I found it really um, enlightening somehow, just to you. mix your experience with the philosophical approach. And you provide one example, which I found really interesting, when an attorney presumed your position on death penalty and diagnosed his opposition to your stance. And you use this example to prove 
to prove somehow how we are sometimes misguided about one's other's ideas, presuming them rather than engaging with them. However, what to do when indeed one supports death penalty, or to put it in a more general term, terms, holds unreasonable views, uh, so the views, uh, the political views that are incompatible with democratic fundamentals. So can we simply cancels, cancel those people who hold such views? You know, so this is um, understandably the, um, I think one of the most core, central and urgent questions of democratic theory. Um, and you could see it, um, uh, you know, you, you could see it playing a role in democratic theory, um, you know, roughly from the beginning, you know, roughly from Plato, <laughs> which is, um, to put it in a in a particular uh, maybe a particularly contemporary way, you know, democracies, you know, a democratic society's commitment to the freedom and equality of the citizens creates opportunities for anti-democratic agents to get into the system and free ride, and then, um, you know, appeal to the very democratic norms that they seek to undermine as a way of um, furthering their political, uh, their political aims. Now, um, the point about the story uh, um, in the debate with the attorney, and uh, this was a debate about whether um, uh, in the states, um, you know, the state I live in, Tennessee, is a uh, state that, um, uh, you know, we in Tennessee permit the, permit the state to execute people. Now, I happen, to think that that's unjustified, unjust, uh, 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 unjustifiable, <laughs> uh, a mistake of, of a pretty uh, serious kind. Um, and the debate was whether uh, there should be televised executions. And um, I was asked to defend the view that there should be, <laughs> that we should televise executions. And um, the, my partner in the debate um, uh, presumed uh, who I hadn't met before the debate, he just presumed that because I was in favor of televising executions, I must also be in favor of um, uh, the death penalty, of capital punishment. And it hadn't occurred to him, it seemed to me, that, um, and by the way, this was my argument at the event. I said, yeah, we sh the state should televise executions because if such a barbaric, obviously unjustifiable, unjust practice is going to be enacted in the name of the citizens, citizens should not be permitted, should not be enabled to look away. They should not be enabled to avoid having to confront what they're endorsing when they support uh, policies and politicians that support uh, the death penalty. This made for a very, um, uh, odd, uh, this was a formal debate in front of an audience, and it made for a very odd exchange because um, the interlocutor just couldn't, you know, hadn't prepared uh, for the possibility uh, that one could be in favor of televising executions because one's opposed to the death penalty. The point of telling that story is just to set up one of the ways in which the urgency to, to act as a democratic citizen can sometimes 
lead us to make presumptions about or um, uh, 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 not think or reflect sufficiently on the range of available opinion. And, you know, that wasn't, it's not designed to suggest that, look, you know, here's the truth and I had the truth and he wasn't able to see it as true. It's just sometimes the, the push and pull, the, uh, uh, um, the give and take, the urgency of politics leads us to just, leads us to constrain unnecessarily our conception of um, possible uh, uh, opinion. So, uh, and I think there are cognitive forces that explain that. Um, and that's part of what the book is about is how certain cognitive forces, it's not just, um, uh, it's not just, um, you know, uh, uh, um, incidental that politics has this feature where when we're in the thick of it, we lose our sense of, you know, the acceptable, the range of possibly acceptable opinion. There's a cognitive force that, cognitive forces that explain that. Now, but to your question, I don't think that there is a general answer to be given to the question that you've asked. That is, I don't think that in the abstract, there is uh, an answer to the question, what do we do with the people who are beyond the pale of democracy? That's not to say, I, I, I don't deny that there are such people. I don't deny that um, there are people who are properly understood as anti-democratic agents who are nonetheless free riding on, uh, uh, on the rights and privileges of democratic citizenship so that they can pursue their agenda. You know, this is, a, in my view, this is a huge problem in the United States right now. <laughs> right, as January 6th showed us. However, until we're talking about specific people, specific views, and some information about what their aims are and what they're doing to further them, I don't know that we have an answer to the, we don't have enough information to give an answer to the question what should our response be? In some cases, now this, you know, I've said this to academic audiences and some people uh, don't like this kind of response, but here is in some cases, as just a purely practical matter, there are some unreasonable people who ought to be treated as if they're reasonable. There are some people who hold views that you might assess justifiably as inconsistent with the fundamental principles of the free and equal citizens who are self-governing uh, 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 members of, uh, uh, of an open society. You might say, well, look, a person who holds a particular position, call it P, that person's not really on board with those fundamental commitments. And I wanna say there are some cases in which even though you're right about the person, you nonetheless ought to proceed as if they are um, uh, acting in good faith as democratic citizens, because that's the best way to contain them, to uh, limit their influence, so on and so forth. So again, let me just put it this way. I think that the, um, the one size fits all um, 
response or the demand for a criterion that says, here are the people who are members of a good faith members of a democratic society. You got to treat them like your equals. You got to listen to them. You have to engage with them. You have to try your best to respond to their objections to you. Okay. And then here's a bunch of people who are not good faith members of a democratic society. They might just be residents within a democratic community, but they themselves are beyond the pale. And here's how you treat them whether it be canceling them or figuring out ways to, uh, to shut them down or you know, shame them or whatever. Um, I think that the, the impulse to look for that criterion and then look for a practical plan to deal with those people is another product of the way in which the urgency for democratic action sort of short circuits reflection there are all kinds of, look, I, I'll, I'll put it this way. I know all kinds of people um, who voted for Donald Trump twice. Some of them, I think, are rightly understood as um, marginally invested in the democratic project at best. Others, others of them, and some of the, these people I'm talking about now are my family members, right? Uh, uh, others of them I just think are um, uh, misinformed about politics, are not very astute in thinking about politics, um, uh, are um, uh, uh, interested in things that lead them to draw hasty conclusions about politics. They're just mistaken. Now, it's hard to fix their errors. <laughs> it's hard to know what to think about anti-maskers and anti-vax people uh, uh, in the United States. It's really hard to know what the right approach is to take with them to just convince them that masks are not an infringement on their freedom and taking the vaccination is a normative, uh, is, is an obligation at this point, right? Uh, for public health reasons. Um, so. It's hard to know what to do at that point, but that's why I, I don't think that there's a I don't think there's a general answer to that. I think it's just you you have to get really granular and start thinking about the real populations, the real differences among the people on the other side, and go from there. Now that that doesn't make any that makes everything a lot harder than we thought it was. But yeah, absolutely. And if we know now that we should approach this situation, okay by the case-by-case -case analysis and that we know now that uh, the answer is contextual, can we perhaps recurse ourselves to some kind of ideologies that could help us limitate those uh, dimensions of freedom, dim dimensions of uh, reasonable views in democracy? Because perhaps liberalism uh, might help us uh, limit somehow the uh, dimension of reasonable views. So it might. Um, now, again, I think that it's important to keep distinct um, two different kinds of assessment uh, that come up in this case. We can talk about reasonable and unreasonable views, and then we can talk about reasonable and unreasonable people, <laughs> right? So I think that there are some, um, 
you know, you can, there are some people who hold unreasonable views by, and by this, I just mean, this is a term of art. I mean, you know, it's got a, a, a law, the, the term reasonable, it's got a, I think a largely unfortunate um, uh, uh, history, not a long history, but a large, uh, a history that I think is largely unfortunate because Rawls uses the term in certain kinds of ways, people pick it up and, and do all kinds of things with it. I'm just using it here as, a, as just a shorthand, right? A reasonable view is a view that is consistent with the fundamental commitments of a democratic society, by which I mean the understanding of democracy as a, uh, as a society of free and equal moral people, right? As citizens as free and equal, free and equal moral persons. Um, that's slightly Rawlsian, but I don't think that that's, the, that's yet problematic for its Rawlsian uh, uh, pedigree. Um, so reasonable views are views that are just consistent with the idea of a democratic society. Reasonable people, <laughs> right, are people who see themselves and understand their commitments as constrained by those fundamental uh, uh, principles of democracy. That is a reasonable person is a person who, if you point out, hey, your position on the way in which your view about how the access to voting should be adjusted in your state is not consistent with the idea of a society of self-governing moral persons qua free and equal citizens, right? That has to count as for a reasonable person that has to count as a reason against the position they hold. So I think that it's important to keep those two things distinct. And I think that there are some people who just through bad luck or because they're not very astute poli as political thinkers, hold unreasonable views simply because they haven't connected the dots. They haven't put things together. The question then is with them is, how do you help them put together? How do you help them connect the dots? Um, there are other people who are unreasonable people uh, who hold unreasonable views. That's a different problem. Then I even want to say there are unreasonable people who, through good luck, hold reasonable views, right? Uh, that's a, and that's a different problem still. So um, I think that, um, you, you know, uh, uh, well, I'll put it this way, philosophically, let's forget about, you know, the United States Republican Party and Democratic Party and all the rest. Philosophically, I'm a liberal. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I, I, I'm a sort of classical John Stuart Mill, John Dewey, Jane Adams kind of liberal, um, uh, social Democrat, sometimes we, we call it. And I think not that um, liberalism and the reaffirmation of liberal values is the solution to all of the problems, Kasia, that you're now talking about. I just think that the reaffirmation of liberal values and liberalism as such is the best response we have uh, to those two problems of that kind. Let me just say one more general thing. And this comes up in, in the Sustaining Democracy book uh, a couple of times. Um, you can, a lot of democratic theory, again, is premised on the idea, even overtly committed to the idea that it's almost like a Rousseauian kind of idea that 
if democracy is running properly, you don't get problems of the kinds that we're now discussing. That strikes me as just um, utopian and, 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 and wrong. I think that as democratic theorists, we have tended to give too little attention to the possibility, and I think it's more than merely a possibility. Uh, we've given too little attention to the possibility that there are certain kinds of political problems, even dysfunctions in politics that are themselves the products of people behaving as citizens as they ought to be behaving, right? That is that people doing what they should do as democratic citizens, I think, creates certain kinds of problems, challenges, and I would even say dysfunctions. So that if you got a society set up exactly with the right institutions that a democratic society should have, and you have a population of citizens doing their best to meet their responsibilities as democratic citizens, I don't think that that is, I don't think that's gonna get you a social and political world where everything is smooth sailing. I think there are still going to be serious conflicts, serious disagreements, various kinds of challenges, and even dysfunctions. How's that? Yeah, but I wanted to ask you about one thing that you mentioned. It seems to me that you are arguing that unreasonable views are stemming from some some kind of uh, not reading enough or not uh, being not politically engaged enough. But I wonder whether these unreasonable views might stem from own experience. And, and if they stem from the own people's experience, how should we approach that? Because it's super hard to change uh, people's experience without changing their past. So actually, it's a very difficult question. I agree. It's a it's an extremely difficult question, um, uh, as you uh, uh, may be able to tell. You know, I, I live in Tennessee. I'm not from the South in the United States, right? I uh, I grew up in the Northeast, uh, around New York in New Jersey, um, and so um, I moved. Uh, to Nashville, which is a relatively liberal city in the heart of a very conservative state. Uh, you know, I moved to Nashville from, um, you know, a part of the United States that's notoriously liberal, you know, that's extremely liberal. Um, and so uh, I quick, one of the things that I quickly learned um, is that it's a kind of, um, again, utopian, um, uh, almost fairy tale uh, diagnosis uh, of um, what we might think of as uh, extreme conservative or extreme right-wing views to um, diagnose them simply as, right, um, mistakes and thinking about things, not knowing the facts, not understanding science, you know, so on and so forth. I mean, a lot of it is diagnosable uh, uh, in those terms, but not all of it is. Um, some of it has to do with, as you were just saying, Kasha, yeah, real experiences of feeling socially excluded in various ways, of feeling disenfranchised, of feeling 
uh, uh, marginalized, um, and in a context where those feelings, those anxieties are then um, channeled usually by um, powerful and um, uh, uh, um, astute political operations, right, are channeled then into political will formation, or we might say, if we don't like talk about political will, political identity formation, so that um, a large number of citizens in the United States who are on the more extreme side of the conservative movement, um, I think, um, you know, act, really do see themselves uh, as victims of marginalization, as oppressed, as left behind, as uh, 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 um, as excluded. Um, now, you know, the answer there, what to do about that? Um, I don't think, I don't know that there's a way to change somebody's mind or to change somebody's set of political commitments once their, once their identity has been formed in a particular way. You know, by the way, in the United States, let me just say this, you know, partisan affiliation, once it's formed, once a United States citizen sees him or herself as a liberal or as a conservative or as a progressive, right? Uh, or as a Republican right? or as a Democrat, once one understands oneself in those sort of political and partisan terms, that's one of the most stable identity markers through a lifetime in the United States. People don't change their understanding of their political selves once they form it. Um, so here's, you know, again, the social democrat in me says, look, here's the way to deal with this. You can't change the individual people's minds. We need policies that do better at enacting justice for everybody. Right? I think that there's ultimately an economic and broader social kind of explanation for some of the more pernicious forms of um, extremism in the United States. And I just think, yeah, um, better education, you know, more economic security, more opportunity for people across the board, um, uh, a stronger workers movement across the board. Uh, is uh, is the way out of this. That's an empirical claim though. So, you know, that's just a, now we just got to argue it out. Like, I don't know, what is the right way to deal with it? You can't change the minds. Can you change the conditions under which those sorts of political identities become central in the first place? That's got to be the answer. Yeah, exactly. How's that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think you are talking here about those mega identities that you also mentioned in your book, right. that the, those all-encompassing identities that are starting from political affiliation. And now I wanted to move to the question of cancel culture, which I already mentioned, I think, in one question, because now it's becoming increasingly popular, especially the younger generation of, uh, of people who are using social media somehow. Is it a reflection of uh, political polarization, belief polarization, or rather this need for a big criterion of limitation for the uh, reasonable views? And does cancel culture strengthen the in-group solidarity, or rather it divides further the allies? So, um, 
this is this is a tricky question um, because in the United States, at least, it's no longer clear to me. Maybe it never was actually clear, but anyway, at the, at the, it's not clear to me at this part of the political discourse um, about the public treatment of people who um, are found articulating or espousing um, positions that um, people think are beyond the pale. I just don't know what cancel culture means anymore. I don't know what the term means. I'm not sure what we're talking about. Now, in the US, this is a um, not an uncommon phenomenon, right? Let me put it, the phenomenon I'm talking about runs like this, right? We identify some new site or some previously insufficiently um, understood field of bad behavior. And we give it a name. <laughs> um, and then we talk, then we invent a language for diagnosing that bad behavior and reacting to it in a moral appropriately, in a morally appropriate way. And we give that a name. But once these newly minted normative terms get introduced into the vernacular, they become um, a new sort of political linguistic football to fight with. So um, I'll give you an example uh, drawn from my, my time as the chair of my department. I was department chair for a decade. And so I saw in this very office at that very desk, a lot of students come to complain about, you know, their logic professor, you know, or whatever it might have been. Um, and um, one day a student came to complain about his logic professor. And, you know, the student was complaining about a policy that was clearly outlined in the syllabus, the student hadn't carefully read the syllabus, so on and so forth. It became very clear, very quickly in the conversation to the student that um, even though I'm department chair, I'm not the boss of his professor. And so I couldn't go march over to this other professor's, you know, uh, um, uh, office and say this kid needs to be given a, you know, an A rather than a C, you know. Um, so the way that the student dealt with that frustration was, um, you know, he sort of put the syllabus aside and the student looked at me and very sincerely said, I don't feel safe in the classroom. I said, what do you mean you don't feel safe in the classroom? Um, yeah, I, I feel like I'm in danger in professor so-and-so's class. I said, what do you mean you feel like you're in danger? And the student said, well, I think I'm gonna fail. <laughs> and I said, whoa, 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 I'm like, wait a minute. You used two words, safety and danger. Um, he might've thrown threat in there. I feel like this is, the class is threatening. I said, you're using these words in ways that connect up with 
certain concerns that we now, I think, justifiably have about academic spaces and the way that we can make uh, uh, classrooms um, more egalitarian. So using words in a way that now is not quite in line with, you know, when, when you know, you're, you're raising a different kind of complaint. I said, look, you are in danger of failing the class. That's for sure. That's different from saying that you feel like you're in danger in the classroom. That's a different kind of thing. And it struck me, right, that that's the fate of um, uh, morally innovative terminology, right? So a term like canceling enters into the vernacular as a way to describe a kind of social sanction that's not legal, but often can have certain kinds of pretty serious uh, penalties attached to it. It's not legal, it's a social sanction, and it's what you do when somebody on social media says something that's you know, um, obviously misogynistic. Uh, that's what you do, they get canceled. Um, but you know, now on social media, we use the word canceled just when we mean somebody's criticized me and I don't like being criticized, they're trying to cancel me. Right, so it's, it's as if for the new normative term to do its job, it has to be elastic enough to cover lots of different kinds of moral wrongdoing and moral repair. But that's precisely what makes it co-optable, right? That's precisely what makes it sort of open game. Now anybody can use the term cancel and cancel culture. And now we, now I just don't think anybody really knows what they're talking about. So I, I don't, I'm sorry, that was a long way of just saying, I'm not sure, right? Not sure yet what, look, there are tendencies, let me put it this way. I think there are tendencies all around democratic culture. And I don't even wanna say on both sides, because I don't think that this is a both sides thing. I just think that because I think that these are, tendencies that have their ultimate explanation in certain cognitive phenomena, I don't think that casting the diagnosis I'm about to articulate as a both sides thing is, is felicitous because um, it's cognitive and to see it as already prepackaged as a liberals versus conservative thing is already, I think, to misdiagnose the, the, the cognitive nature of it. But I think that you're right that part of what's going on in a lot of um, public political discourse, particularly at the moment, particularly given the ease with which social media facilitates um, political expression and political coalition building, all of which seem to me to be good for democracy, but they create these challenges, right? What are the challenges? Well, now a surefire way, right, of communicating to your allies that you're authentic, you know, that you're a real member of the team, that you're part of the squad, that, you are a, that you're not a poser or a fake, right? One of the ways to communicate to your political allies that you're a stalwart ally is not to get involved in policy questions, yeah, not to get involved in what your political alliance should say about environmental policy. There's too much divisive stuff, even among your allies, 
right? To get So the way that you show, as you were saying, solidarity with your allies is figure out new and more and more hostile ways of calling out the bad people on the other side, right? Figure out ways to, you know, more new ways to deform, right? To caricature, to demonize the other side. That's a far more effective way of building solidarity with your own side because, hey, if there's one thing you and I can agree on, it's we hate those guys. We might not agree. If we start talking about, you know, environmental policy, tax policy, what the immigration policy, we might discover we disagree. That would not be fun. So, but let's instead figure out new ways to tell each other how bad the other side is. That's a far more effective way of building coalitions. And it turns out, Again, this is not a dysfunction of democracy. This is what democracy, as I put it in the book, right? In a democracy, and this is right, right, this is as things should be. In a democracy, if you want an effective political voice, you have to join a choir. You got to join with others. And that means you've got to build those relationships of loyalty and alliance and allegiance and solidarity with others. What's the most effective way to do that? Turn up the heat on your negative estimation uh, of the people who are in the outgroup. By the way, this is what high school is in the United States. <laughs> but in this way, somehow the democratic discussion between the government and the opposition is no longer possible when we just turning up the heat. Uh, yes. And yeah, I also see those beha this behavior that you described to identify bad behavior and then call it out and just leave the person out of the group. So on the other hand, it's not only identity and solidarity building, but also excluding some people from who are not fitting enough to our group. And now I wanted to ask you a question about the discourse of rights, because it's fascinating that your book doesn't mention it explicitly, but focuses primarily on citizens' duties. And was it purposeful to exclude rights from the discussion of democracy? Uh, because in the current discussions, we usually urge others to recognize our rights because without this recognition, we do not feel fully humane. And one could see in this a reflection of judicial, judicialization of our politics and societies, but also as a discursive shift that excludes civilian duties. So in this sense, your book uh, and your discussion of civility brings back this expelled dimension. And would you agree with such an interpretation? Yeah, and so let me just, one of the reasons why, um, you know, I don't follow a pretty um, important, and I would say, philosophically astute and formidable tradition in democratic theory of talking about citizenship in terms of requirements to acknowledge duly others' rights. So one of the reasons why I try to extract or step away from that particular kind of discourse is because I'm, I'm trying to make explicit 
what we maybe what we, you know this is this might trying to make explicit what I see as a conflict within the phenomenology right of the democratic citizen with what it's like to be a democratic citizen and once you start talking about rights then I think that the account um, is already set up to try to offer a particular familiar response. Like, why do we treat our political enemies? Why do I need to treat my political enemies as my social equals? Well, they have a right to it. Okay, but look at how depraved, look at how wrong, look at how terrible, look at how politically malinformed, misinformed they are. Why do they have rights to be treated? Why do they get, why do they have that entitlement in the first place? They don't take democracy seriously. And you could see how the argument from, from that kind of premise would start to run. I wanted to give a different kind of argument. I wanted to say, look, let's take, instead of trying to formulate this conflict, right? Why treat my political enemies as my equals when after all, they are politically depraved, right? Like, instead of trying to give a response to that question that focuses on the standing of the enemies, right? The purported foes, the opposition. I wanted to say, well, wait a minute, let's take that conflict seriously. Because I think it's, it's sort of, I think it's embedded in the office, in the role of democratic citizen, that if you are an active democratic participant, you are going to have to confront that question. The people who oppose me on this particular question oppose me only because they are ignorant, depraved, bigoted, stupid, mal misinformed, yada, yada, yada. And why should I care about them at all? I think that that's just part of what it is to be a democratic citizen, is to feel that tension. And the accountant sustaining democracy is trying to say, look, stick with that, that conflict that emerges within the democratic citizen. And now I wanna say, look, whatever, however things might stand with the rights and entitlements of your opposition to being treated in a particular way, and I don't deny any of that stuff. I, you know, I'll accept all that. It's like, there's still an additional kind of argument that I don't think gets enough, I don't think hasn't gotten, I think has gotten, hasn't gotten enough attention that says, the reason why, or a reason why you need to treat your political opponents as your equals, despite the fact that they might be as bad as you think they are, is because unless you find real political enemies that you can treat as your equals, you're going to disserve and ultimately dissolve your political alliances. And insofar as you have an interest in pursuing justice as you see it, you need to preserve, more than preserve, you need to expand, grow, build upon your political alliances. So in, you need political enemies in order to keep your political friends. That's not, I argue in the book, that's not merely like a, a prudential or an instrumental argument. It's good to have friends do what you can to keep them. It's a moral argument, right? In a democracy, again, if you want 
you've got a moral requirement as a democratic citizen to try to pursue justice in the political world according to your best lights. You need political, you need sturdy political alliances, sturdy political friendships in order to pursue justice. It seems to me that it's a pretty clear dictate of justice, right? <laughs> if you're required to pursue justice, if you if you have a normative requirement to pursue justice, there's a normative requirement to preserve the conditions under which you can do that. <laughs> so <laughs> you need political friends? Well, there's a normative requirement, not merely instrumental, not merely practical. There's a normative requirement to do what you can to preserve your ability to sustain your political friendships. Turns out that in order to do that, you need to find political enemies that can serve as occasions for you to be self-critical. That's, let me just say that as the last point, because I think that that's also uh, a crucial feature of the account of sustaining democracy. You know, at the end, right, the challenge for the democratic citizen might arise because the democratic citizen has to confront, you know, a political opponent that she comes to see as depraved and ignorant and terrible and not really invested in democracy. But ultimately, the, the, the solution, ultimately, the, the prescription in the book doesn't really have much to do with the political opponent after all, right? It has to do with what's inside, right? right? That the democratic, the office of democratic citizenship requires a, a certain set of normative, including intellectual character traits. And what I wanna say is you don't, you don't, this is not an argument. The book does not give an argument for hearing the other side because you know they might be right or they might have a point or hey, you know, uh, uh, you know, you can learn something from. Them. It's not that kind of argument. Yeah, that's a sort of a million. It's not a million argument in that sense. Um, the argument rather is that um, you need political, you need interactions on democratic terms with your political enemies or at least some political enemies in order to do right by your own political commitments. Um, that is, um, you need to interact with your political enemies, not because you can, you know, not because they might be right. You need to interact with your political enemies because um, that kind of interaction um, uh, reminds you, keeps you mindful of the fact that you can always improve your political thinking. That's not a skeptical view. It's not like saying, well, you gotta, you know, keep them open mind. Maybe the conservatives are right. You know, that's not the argument. The argument is rather that it's a, it's a mistake. And I think it's just a mistake epistemically across the board. I mean, you know, but it's certainly a mistake from the point of view of the epistemology of democracy. It's a mistake to adopt the view that you, you know, Bob Talese, yeah, Hokasha, yeah. You've had the final the final political thought you need to have. And now it's just a matter of enacting that thought. It's like, no, you need to figure out strategies to keep yourself aware, to make yourself, to remind yourself that your own political thinking can always be improved. That doesn't require you to change your mind about anything, it just requires you to see that there are always, there's always going to be a better way to formulate the idea a stronger way to make the case, a different way to address the, the challenge. And um, the thesis of the book is that 
reorienting oneself to one's own political ideas so that one is constantly reminded of the possibility of epistemic improvements to one's political ideas is probably the best tool we have for mitigating the pernicious impacts of belief polarization. How's that? Yeah, I absolutely admire this approach towards the ethical and pragmatical ideal that is applicable for all the citizens. No one is excluded from that. So I really like that. I appreciate that. And I wanted, I, I wanted to ask you one last question that would be more practical. So recent research, perhaps you have seen that, by the Center for the Future of Democracy at Cambridge University has shown that Today's young people are the generation most dissatisfied with the performance of democratic governments and members of this generation are more skeptical of the merits of democracy compared not only to the older generation, but also with young people polled in the earlier eras. So my question to you would be how to combat even greater dissatisfaction with democracy among the younger generation after the COVID crisis. Shall we see this as a, like, a temporary trend or rather as a persistent condition of our times? Yeah, you know, this is a hard, <laughs> this is not an easy question. So I think that you're right. Um, uh, well, what, the, the first thing I would wanna say is that um, We need a, we, I would need a little bit more clarity about what the result means, right? So one could imagine um, dissatisfaction and, and, and failing or declining trust in democratic government to be an indicator of a range of different attitudes about politics. Some people might say, might report low levels of trust or confidence in democratic government and, because they think that existing democratic governments are too corrupt to do the job well. So they're gonna report low levels of trust in the government. You might say, well, somebody might report a similarly low level of confidence in democracy uh, because they have anti-democratic attitudes, right? That they're really committed to some other sort of non-democratic, you know, theocratic, you know, uh, uh, authoritarian style um, mode of politics, but they're going to give the same kind of reading on the temperature or whatever the scale that was used in the study uh, uh, is. So one would need a little bit, it seems to me, to know exactly what to make of the result. One would need a little bit more data and to see how sturdy those trends are. So, you know, that's just the ordinary, you know, social scientist answer to any kind of surprising result is, what does it mean and is it really a trend? Um, but um, uh, I think that one possible um, one one possible thing that might be going on in um, uh, overall, you know, you know, there we know there there are overall trends and just sort of lack of trust in government, right? Um, uh, the philosopher Kevin Vallier writes a lot about this, right? Um, 
trust in government, you know, trust in politics, trust, you know, is the trust in one's neighbors is declining, uh, particularly in the United States, I should say. Um, and I wonder if this is just speculation, you know, I don't know what to say ultimately. Uh, uh, um, but I wonder if there isn't a a sense in which the lack of trust or declining trust or declining confidence or declining commitment uh, to democracy isn't in part at least explained by a kind of exhaustion. Um, now, uh, again, maybe this is specific to the US, although I could imagine a similar kind of case could be made um, uh, in the UK right now. But um, the previous presidential administration just left me exhausted with politics. That didn't mean like, I, it's not like I took up the view that politics isn't important. It was just, I felt so um, um, so inundated with with what the president was doing every morning, opening up the newspaper, clicking on, you know, the news to find out some new ridiculous thing, dangerous thing, terrible thing, mean-spirited thing, bigoted thing had been said or tweeted or, and eventually it just, it, it psychologically began um, taking such a toll that I could imagine at some point in the course of that, sort of reporting some really, um, some really negative attitudes about the state of democratic politics and reporting them as negative attitudes about democracy in my country, right? Um, so, uh, and again, my hope as a sort of a political philosopher at certain, certain points, even to this day, certain junctures in especially United States politics. Although I'm sure my friends in the UK tell me that there's similar trends going on with Brexit and, and frustrations uh, about all that. Um, you know, political outrage, um, uh, resentment, um, um, animosity, surely, these are finite emotional resources, right? Surely at some point, there's just no more hate to give. <laughs> Surely at some point, you know, a democratic citizen has to just say, I have no more resentment. I have no more outrage. I have no more indignation. Surely that's gotta be true. Um, and I hope it is, uh, because especially in my country, because um, uh, the, the way things are are going, um, where it's now pretty, it's not it's not at all difficult to um, to find sizable groups of people who, in the name, so they say, of the Constitution. And the um, and the republic and our democrat our democratic traditions and the founders of the nation in the name of all of that espouse fundamentally anti democratic ideals. 
Yeah, so let's hope that the next democratic cycle will be more exciting, exuberant than this one after the exhaustion that was brought by the previous administration. I, I, I hope so. so. <laughs> thank you very much, Robert, for this conversation. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me. It was really nice talking to you and thank you for reading the book. <laughs> thank you very much. So I should recommend it to everyone listening to us. Thank you once again and see you in the next podcast for hear you. Okay. If you would like to be updated with our podcasts and written content, follow the Engrave them on Facebook or on Twitter or even or on Instagram. Subscribe also to the Engrave them podcast on Spotify and enjoy more conversations with leading scholars. Thank you and until the next time.